Hey everybody, welcome back to the I Play 2 podcast, where relatives of famous athletes, entertainers, and musicians get to tell their stories. I'm your host, Rob Adler. On the show this week is former hockey goaltender Jordan Parise. Jordan played in two NCAA Frozen Fours in the American Hockey League and overseas in Europe. Also, both his father, JP, and brother, Zach, are former NHL All-Stars. Jordan, welcome to the show. Rob, thank you very much for having me, man. This is going to be great. No problem. Thank you for taking the time to uh, join us. You decided to become a goalie when you were young. Why did you pick goalie over another position on the ice? I saw that there was this one position that guys were on the ice the entire game. I loved hockey. I just wanted to be on the ice all the time. And I realized, okay, in order for me to be on the ice all the time, I have to become a goaltender. So my dad, with many, many years of knowing I do not want my son to be a goaltender, he ended up putting me in the net in a might game, an upper might game against what was considered the best team at upper might level. He thought that I was going to get shelled and he thought that I was never going to want to put on the pads again. And I ended up either letting in one goal or posting a shout out or something. And he just got back in the car and was like, man, this, this was a horrible, horrible mistake. And, you know, I never turned my back from that point forward. Which goalies did you say, you know what, I might want to be like that guy? I grew up in, in Minnesota, so we had guys like John Casey and Kari Taco. We would go to those games, and I would watch and just loved watching those guys play. But then the All-Stars at that time were Patrick Waugh, Martin Brodeur, which I ended up playing with as a kid who just idolized this guy. For me to actually go to camp with this guy and see this guy, see him in the flesh, get to talk to him, all those things, it was such a surreal experience. I was a little bit exploratory with my stick work, so I loved Ron Hextall as well. Those those are kind of the three guys that were my idols when I was growing up. With Brodeur, what were you able to take from just watching him in a practice, in a camp, in a game, first person? I went to three different NHL camps. I went with the Devils. I went with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and I went with the New York Rangers. It's fascinating to see how all of these guys are so entirely different. Martin Brodeur, he didn't really spend a lot of time with the younger guys, whereas when I went to Pittsburgh, Marc-Andre Fleury was like the first guy to come up and talk to me. Brett Johnson was also there at the time. And both of those guys were, keep your head down, keep working. And I watched them, how they were with their teammates. And they were just always positive, always working hard, always doing extra, all these types of things. And then I got to see Henrik Lundqvist and Marty Biron and watch those guys. And it was just fascinating to see how all these guys are so different. They all are doing the same thing. The way that they go about their day and about their life is entirely different. I thought Brodeur was a little bit more reclusive. He didn't really want to talk to us very much. And like I said before, I mean, Marc-Andre Fleury, it's very, very well known what a wonderful teammate that guy is. And I got to experience that when he was still a young guy very early on in, in sort of the uprising of his career. He's still going now. He's 38 years old or 39 years old and with the wild and he's considering going another year. And, and all you hear about is what a great teammate it is. So... All these guys are entirely different in, in how they go about their craft and how they go about interacting with other guys that are coming in. In terms of like what you got, is there an example or an experience that, you know, stuck with you, not just from when they said it, but e even now? Being a good teammate. They were their team's and their partner's biggest cheerleaders. They understood that success of the group meant success for everybody. When I was playing at, you know, one of the things that I look back on is, I wanted to play. I wanted to play all of the games. And what that did is it crept in my mind of if my partner is playing, I don't want him to play well. And that's not a healthy place to be. I realize this now, but it wasn't a good, healthy way for me to be uh, in, a, in a good competitive state 
with my partner while also cheering on him and cheering on the team when I wasn't playing. There are so many fewer opportunities to be a goaltender as opposed to being a forward or a defenseman. How does that mindset of becoming that good teammate happen when knowing the fact that you're in a pretty tight competition, there are four other guys there, there are only two spots. The only person that you should be competing with is yourself. There's so many other factors that are taking place when you're trying to play in the NHL or trying to play professional hockey or just trying to play in a game and making sure that I'm 1% better than I was the day before and making sure that I'm doing everything that I can from a teammate standpoint, from an athlete standpoint, from a family standpoint to be 1% better. And the minute that I start competing with other people and comparing myself to other people, there's a reason why people say that comparison is the thief of joy. And I look back at my career and I realized that once I started comparing myself, then all of a sudden those types of things started to creep in and I was not enjoying myself as much as I, as I should be. How can I control the controllables and how can I be 1% better on my own? Then all of a sudden things in my life started to even out and they started to become better. Things in my career just started to become better once I started to realize that the only person I should be competing with is myself. When you're talking about, you know, just competing with yourself, is there a moment or memory in your career where that didn't happen and you were trying to compete with somebody else and you're like, oh, if I hadn't done that, I might have gotten a spot here or a spot there? My first year of juniors, I ended up being cut from four different teams in three different leagues in two different countries before Christmas. I had a lot of these focuses on, oh, I should be playing and I'm not playing because of X and I'm not playing because of Y. And I came back at the end of that season, I was pointing fingers at everything except for myself. I told my dad, I said, listen, I I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I don't know if I want to play anymore. And he said, okay, I understand. What I would do if I was you is I would just say, give it one more chance. And if you're going to give it one more chance, you need to take control here. You need to realize that none of these external things matter at all. And you can control your work ethic. You can control your character. You can control how you are on the team, how you respond to coaches, how you respond to wins, how you respond to losses. It's 100% up to you to control those types of things. Now, I took that mindset and I went into my second year of juniors with the Waterloo Blackhawks and had a great year. Literally that one conversation that I had with my dad and that one season completely changed the trajectory of my career and my life. You play with Joe Pavelski currently with the Dallas Stars. What about playing in Waterloo had everything kind of come together for you to have that great year and get yourself noticed by universities for possibly playing in college? To kind of give a little understanding of how I got to Waterloo, I was working at a hockey camp that was run by Troy Ward. And at that time, I think he was with Wisconsin, if I remember correctly. But Troy Ward is unbelievable coach, unbelievable human. And he was running a hockey camp and it was called Hockey and Sons. And so basically these parents or these dads would go and do a hockey camp with their kids. And so you have these 50-year-old guys, 40-year-old guys that are in gear that can't really play. And they would go and do a hockey camp with their dad. And it was just like a phenomenal experience for for all of these guys. And at that camp was P.K. O'Hanley, who had just been hired to be the head coach of the Waterloo Blackhawks. And over the course of 
you know, the couple of weeks that they were there, I was talking with PK and, and creating a relationship with him and all these other things. And finally, my dad over, you know, maybe a couple of cold ones with PK said, Hey, my son doesn't have a place to play. Is it okay? Or do you guys have an opportunity at Waterloo for him to at least get some ice time? And so PK having met me, having known me for those couple of weeks said, yeah, he seems like a good kid. Let's bring him in. And so I was actually the 13th goalie that was invited to the camp. I ended up going there, again, prepared as best as I possibly could, over-prepared, went to the camp as a 13th guy invited to camp, had four shutouts in six games, led in one goal in each of the other two games, and ended up making the team. Over the course of that season, I ended up playing over half the games, had good numbers. We ended up losing in the semifinals uh, that year to Omaha. During the course of the year, I had PK as my mentor, my coach. How do you become a pro? How do you become a good teammate? How do you become a good player? I love the man, but he was very hard on me in the sense of he did not accept when guys did not play to their potential. And so he had a very, very high standard of what was acceptable. So I remember specifically, we were playing against Omaha earlier in the season that had 42 saves on the night and we lost 2-1. PK could tell that I wasn't pissed off. I mean, I played well. I did everything that I possibly could. And, you know, we ended up losing the game. PK said, how do you feel? And I was like, oh, I feel pretty good. And he's like, really? You feel good about a loss? No, I mean, I feel good about how I played. It doesn't matter how you played. You still lost the game. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And from that point forward, he made it a standard that if you ever let in more than two goals in a game, you would be pulled. Unless the game was super tight or whatever it was, or it was a 6-1 game or 6-2 game or whatever it was, both myself and Jeff Dekaitis, uh, who's the other, other goalie at the time, if we let in two goals, maybe sometimes three goals, but mostly if it was two goals, he'd pull us. And then we'd have a conversation with him, we'd go back in or whatever it was, or we would just get pulled. And so I realized that there was a certain standard. He was holding you to that standard of what your potential could be at all times. That is one of the best things that PK gave me was there's a standard that has to be met and it has to be met every single day. As I go and I do my coaching now, all the kids that I work with, they love it. They know when they step on the ice with me that there is a standard and it has to be met and I'll joke with them and all, but when it comes time to work, we're working. Did that create a little extra level of stress for you and Jeff in net? It's teaching you how to be a pro. You have to figure it out. These are the things that you can control and you can't control. You have the ability to control certain things of how you approach the game, how you prepare for the game. I mean, he was very quick to pull the trigger on that. If he knew that you were not prepared properly, if you're screwing around before the game, if you're screwing around the locker room, things like that, he was very quick to pull you. And so what it did is just, it made you realize, hey, listen, all he's doing is just teaching you how to be a pro. As a professional athlete, you don't get many off nights and the scrutiny is so high right now that you can't. And so that's why you see guys that are always eating properly. They're not going out as much as they used to. That used to be guys would go out after games and have beers and things like that. I mean, there's no more room for these moments where you are not at your best. And he was teaching us that very young. And if you want to be a pro, this is what it has to be. You mentioned a little bit about the diet now. How important is the diet to a player in terms of wanting to be successful? When you're playing in the minors, what ends up happening is you get to the rink before the game. Let's say we're playing in Portland, Maine or something like that. You get to the rink before the game and they give you a laminated card of your options from a local Italian restaurant. You can get 
pizzas, you can get meatball subs and pastas or whatever you want. We would get there and what you'd have to do is you'd have to pick something that was on that list and then you put your money into a little cup. And so there ends up, you know, there's 20 guys on the team. Everybody's spending eight bucks or something like that on some terrible food. And so there's a couple hundred bucks that are in that cup. Then you get on the bus and there's whatever you ordered, there's a pizza box in your seat with your name on it. And that's what you get. And you got to go play the next night and you got to go play the next night after that, all in different places. And all you're doing is just eating terrible food. And then you wonder why when you go and you play, you know, your third game or something like that, you can't play. There's a joke amongst professional hockey players that the NHL means the never hungry league and the AHL means the always hungry league because you get everything that you want to eat no matter what when you get done playing an NHL game and you have to suffer through some awful local pizzeria or something like that after your American League games. And then the East Coast League's even worse. I don't think a lot of fans understand that the travel schedule in terms of where you're going and the fact that you're not taking charter flights everywhere. You're grinding it out on the bus. The worst was when I was in the East Coast League and I was just there for a very short period of time. I had signed a contract with the Penguins and they had already had six guys signed at that point. So I was very quickly pushed down into the East Coast League. So I had to play a little bit in in Wheeling, West Virginia. And there was a game that we played, get to the rink at midnight to drive our sleeper bus. We had a team of 20 guys and it slept eight. So (laughs) it wasn't really a sleeper bus. And we had to drive to Kalamazoo, Michigan. We literally got to the rink after driving throughout the whole night. We got to the rink for our pregame skate. When you start to learn about how important sleep is to performance, how important nutrition is to performance, you start realizing, you know, we're driving six to 12 hours, sometimes longer, two games, getting off the bus and trying to play after not sleeping and not eating properly, not exercising, not preparing. And then you're expected to jump off the bus and play. I mean, this is not an environment conducive to excellence at all. And it was very hard for me to manage that and map that out. Those are the things I couldn't control, but they were controlling me. You just have to do everything you can to offset all of these negative things that are taking place in order to try to perform. Because listen, all the guys that are in the East Coast League are trying to get to the American League. You have to perform well in order to get the American League. And then all the guys that are in the American League are trying to perform well to get to the National Hockey League. But there's some of these factors that are affecting you. Like I said before, you can't have many off nights anymore. There's a lot of good players and there's a lot of good players that are really taking care of themselves and taking care of their bodies and making sure that they're setting themselves up in a prime way to perform well. They don't do a wonderful job in the American League, especially in the East Coast League, for making sure that guys have the opportunity to perform well and therefore have an opportunity to move up because they are performing well. So it's kind of like this weird catch-22 type thing where when a kid would say, I need to play more and then I'll play better. And then my dad would say, you need to play better and then you'll play more. And it's kind of like this same thing in the in the East Coast League and the American League of, listen, I like I need the opportunity to play better, but you're not giving me that opportunity to play better. And they're saying, you need to play better and then we'll play you more. With all the, the travel, were you able to create some bonds with some players that you still have to this day just because you're spending so much time together? The American League is a very strange place because nobody wants to be there. And yet you're all going after a similar goal. And then the other thing is too, is you have trades and you have guys that are being sent down from one team, being picked off on waivers on the next. I found it more 
often when I was in Europe to have discussions with guys and, and create friendships with guys. And hey, what are you going to do after hockey? Hey, I have this business idea. I'm learning about this right now. We're all kind of over there for similar reasons. And then, you know, creating bonds in locker rooms with those guys, because there's nowhere to go. You're not in Austria trying to get to the KHL that year where you are in the American League, you are trying to get to the NHL. In the minors, it was all, everybody was kind of in it for themselves of how do I get out of this place? How on earth do I get out of Lowell, Massachusetts? And so everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And it's not as much of an environment where, hey, I'm going to help the people that are next to me because the people that are next to me are in my way for getting to the National Hockey League. So it's like a very weird, selfish isolating environment. And I don't think that it was intended to be built that way, but that's definitely what it was. And that's definitely how I felt that it was. I know you played a couple exhibition games with New Jersey. Do you have any memories of those games? I ended up signing with the Devils, had a good year in the minors my first year, ended up putting up good numbers for a rookie. Like everything was great. We were on the right track. And then my second year came back to camp I was given the opportunity to play in two exhibition games, once against the Flyers and once against the Rangers. And so there's this really cool experience that I had. I got to play at Shattuck with my brother, play in the same ice with him. Then we got to go to University of North Dakota, got to play on the same ice with him. And now I'm sitting here at Madison Square Garden with my brother again. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's a, a fairy tale from the standpoint of brothers being able to play with each other, especially a goalie and a forward. And I was sitting on the bench and I was still enamored by the fact that I was at Madison Square Garden sitting on the bench. Kevin Weeks had started that game. And Sean Avery ran Kevin Weeks about six minutes into the game. And so Sutter looks at me and he's like, hey, you got to go. I'm still like looking at the crowd and looking at the jumbotron and everything. He's like, you got to go. You got to play. I let in three goals. I got to the rink the next morning and my goalie coach wanted to meet with me. My goalie coach at that time said, hey, let's let's go over all the goals and things like that that you let up. Let's go over the game tape. I'm there several hours before practice. We're going over game tape. And there was a five-on-three goal that they scored. I want to say that it was Brendan Shanahan scored a one-timer, which he's done 500 times from that particular spot. So when he scored, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool that I got scored on by Brendan Shanahan. My goalie coach says, what are you doing here? I said, at this particular moment, I made a save here, slid over in a backside push and tried to make that save. And he said, why didn't you get up? I said, well, if you look at the film, you can see that I was in the right position at that time. We need you to play more like Marty. Marty would have got up there. And I said, hey, cool, I understand, but I'm in the right position at this time. And he stopped the tape and he pointed at me and he said, this is exactly why you'll never effing play in the NHL. And I was like, wow, that is demoralizing. This is crazy to me. I ended up going into the locker room for that practice, obviously distraught. The person that I need to encourage me the most is sitting here saying that this is never going to happen. And I'm sitting there and I'm sorting through my equipment and I realized that I do not have, because I didn't unpack my gear, I couldn't find my insoles to my skates. So now kind of pressed on time. So I quickly run over to the big team's locker room and I'm like, hey, I don't have any insoles. And they say, hey, we don't have any insoles. I run in, I check my bag, I can't find my insoles. I run back in to there again. And I said, hey, they're not in here. Can you guys at least like cut me some or something like that? So they're sitting there, they're cutting these for me. Now I'm really getting pressed on time. I start trying to you know, put all my gear on quickly. I realize I'm going to be the last one on the ice. I grab my chest protector. I put my chest protector on and I slide my arms in through the chest protector and the insoles of my skates are in the arms of my chest protector. This is unbelievable. Now I panic. Now I'm late for practice. I start running on the ice. As I round the corner, Brett Sutter is sitting there waiting for me. Brett Sutter does not shy away from using swear words very often. He said to me, what the F is going on? 
I said, yeah, I'm sorry. And I started walking away and he said, don't you ever effing walk away from me. So now I have two of these coaches that are not pleased with me. So I go on the ice. I practice. Practice was fine. Get off the ice. Chris Lamarillo, who's Lou's son, comes to me. He was the general manager of the of the Lowell team the, in the American League. He says, hey, Lou wants to talk to you. <laughs> I'm like, man, could this day get any worse at this point? Go up to Lou's office. I say, hey, Lou, you know, you said I heard that you want to talk to me. And he said, yeah, what's your excuse for being late? And I said, well, you know, what ended up happening? He said, no, the answer is there is no effing excuse. Go pack your stuff. You're going down to Lowell. So I said, okay. After you got sent down to Lowell, I know you had an injury. Could you kind of walk us through what happened, the process, and where it led you? I ended up playing the next night in an exhibition game in the American League and tore my labrum in my hip. That kind of started the process for what was the end of my NHL career. I kept playing, and if you if you look at my season that year, like my numbers are terrible. I was not playing well. I kept going to the training staff. I think something's wrong with my hip. Oh, it's your hip flexor. And this is one of the things that I realize is different about college and, and pro is in college, if you get hurt, they shut you down right away. They get you the treatment that you need. But in pro, when they start paying you, like they're going to squeeze everything that they can possibly get out of you, all the juice out of you. So I rehab my hip flexor, still didn't have any relief. Oh, it's your IT band, still had no relief. Oh, it's your adductor, still had no relief. So now we're about three months into the season. We're playing against Wilkes-Barre, and I talked with John Curry, who was another NHL goaltender, who's down in the minors at that time. And I said, hey, I know that you had hip problems, but like, how did you find out that it was torn? And he said, did you have an MRI? And I said, yeah. And he said, it came out negative, didn't it? And I said, yeah. And he said, you need to have an MR arthrogram. And that's where they inject the dye into the joint. Things brighten up, and they can see everything much easier. So I said, okay, cool. I went to the team and I said, hey, I need to have an arthrogram. And they were kind of fussy about it. Finally, I said, you guys, there's something wrong here. I know that there's something wrong. So they sent me to the doctor, had an arthrogram done, ended up having a horrible, horrible labrum tear in my hip. Bone fragment had, had chipped off the femoral head as well. They basically said, hey, you know, this is what we found. Can you still practice? And I said, no, absolutely will not continue to practice. So they put me on the shelf at the end of January. I had surgery the end of February. They offered to qualify me at the end of the season for the next year. I was emotional and I said no. And I started looking for a job somewhere else. It's hindsight. You don't realize how close you actually are to the NHL when you're in the American League. One injury can happen at any time. You have no idea when it's going to happen. And I know many guys that have made their career in the NHL on a fluke situation. By that point, Marty Brodeur had never missed more than, I think, four games to injury in his career. And that next year, he ended up tearing his bicep tendon and missed over 50. I was already playing in Europe at that time, but I look at that situation of, for me personally, if I just would have listened to the people that had my best interests in their mind, if I would have just listened to them and trusted the process of how you get to the NHL, I probably would have had an opportunity. But my opportunity was gone. And it was a pretty devastating situation to be in. One of those times and, and one of those things when I sit there and I talk to people about the emotions of the game and how hard it is to make it when you're right at the finish line, you don't even know that you're at the finish line. That's the hardest part is you don't know when it's going to happen. And then it just happens overnight and your, your opportunity is there. As we talk about hindsight and looking back and handling situations differently, was there ever a game or a stressful situation that you wish you had handled differently? 
when I reflect on it, I don't know if I buckled under the stress. I've watched the game several times now, and I, I see the game from a different lens, a non-emotional, objective lens. The game that I played against Boston College my my junior year, University of North Dakota, we should have won the national championship that year. We had a young team, but we had just an excellent, excellent team, and I was playing extremely well. And we had our game against Boston College, and it ended up being a 6-5 loss to end our season. And we were down 3 nothing at the end of the first period. I sat there in the locker room after that first period. And I was like, what happened? How could it possibly be that we're in this position right now? I would say that that was a moment where I felt like I was overwhelmed and I couldn't figure out a way to get out of it. But that was a moment where I think that under the pressure of we have a really good chance at winning a national championship this year and then being down 3 nothing after the first period against Boston, I was just like, wow, I don't know if I missed an opportunity here and I don't know why I could have possibly missed an opportunity. Maybe if I would have had that more mature experience of, hey, man, sometimes this just happens, then maybe there was one goal that I wouldn't have given up out of frustration or two goals that I wouldn't have given up out of frustration, given us a, a better chance to win. But that is a game that haunted me for years. We've talked so much about hindsight, but where has your life taken you after you've hung up your hockey skate? So when I was getting finished, one of my best friends called me and said, hey, I'm not telling you to retire, but if you're thinking of retiring from hockey, I know a lot of guys that are in medical device sales. I have a, a lead for you if you want to talk to a guy. And I said, yeah, sure. At that point, I didn't make enough money in my career to say, hey, I'm going to take a couple of years off and try to sort through life and sort through what I want to do. So I needed a job pretty quickly. I went with this guy who was a district manager for a medical device company. And we got to go into an operating room. I got to watch a surgery. And at that particular time, I was watching an arthroscopic hip surgery, which I had had two by this point. I sat there and I listened to what the doctor was saying. I was watching the procedure, watching the monitors, understanding the physiology of what was going on, the anatomy, all these different things. And I was completely enthralled by it. As a professional athlete, you sit there and you focus on how can I make sure that my body is performing optimally at all times? And when it doesn't perform optimally, what is actually going on? Why is this happening? And now I get to look inside the body and understand what was actually going on right away. Yeah, this sounds amazing. I would love to do this. Love human anatomy, love physiology, love working with people, love the human body, how it functions. Somebody's going to pay me to do this. Yeah, this sounds amazing. And so I did that and I originally got into orthopedics and sports medicine. So I was only doing arthroscopic procedures for shoulders, hips, and knees, some wrists and ankles, but primarily shoulder, hips, and knees. I did that for a couple of years, ended up having a tragedy in my family. I was living in Fargo, North Dakota at that time. And so I wanted to move back closer to home. Found a role in neurosurgery, which was another thing that I was very interested in. I had a number of concussions throughout the course of my career and to understand what was going on inside of the brain and, and how it functioned with the body was also very intriguing to me. Did neurosurgery for about four years and then took a little bit of a different turn and went into cardiology and was doing aortic valve replacements. And now that was for older patients. I did that for about three years. My time in medical device sales was phenomenal, but ultimately it was an opportunity for me to get into sales learn about sales, learn about the body, learn about all these things that I actually had like some sort of intrigue in. Most recently, I decided to take another turn. So I was in medical device for a decade, and then I took another turn. And now I'm in the process of building my own hockey program and 
a, a number of other things that are primarily working with smaller companies with some sort of focus either on technology or on health and wellness and human performance. That's the direction that my life is going right now. I had my hockey career, which was wonderful. I had my medical device career, which was wonderful. And now I'm taking a little bit of a different approach and really honing in on the things that I find are the most intriguing and most valuable to humans and human performance. You mentioned that you had a family tragedy. I know that your father passed away several years ago. Take us through the process of his diagnosis, his unfortunate passing, and how you were able to kind of deal with it, come to terms with it. In 2014, right around Valentine's Day, my parents went to the doctor because my dad was having a little bit of a back issue. And so they did an x-ray. And the x-ray showed something that they were a little bit concerned with. Did a little bit more testing. And on February 22nd, 2014, my mom gave me a call and told me that they found that my dad had stage four lung cancer. I mean, complete disbelief. As a son, you look at your father as the epitome of strength, the epitome of wisdom. This is the ideal. And to try to work through the understanding that something is going to kill him, but you'll never be able to see what that is. It's an extremely, extremely difficult thing to grasp. So shortly after that, he started to do the chemotherapy process. And for me, that was uh, horrible, horrible to watch. And we kept everything more or less a secret within our family. And by the end of 2014, we kind of knew like this is not going well. And he ended up dying on January 7th of 2015. So he made it just about 11 months. And the whole process was very interesting because I was in the medical field at that point and I had a couple of trusting people that I worked with. So what I would do is I would bring in paperwork or whatever that my parents went to the doctor and got to my doctors and say, hey, can you just walk me through exactly what this means? And ultimately what I found out very early is that I knew that this was not good. This was not going to be the miracle that people want it to be. My brother and my mom, on the other hand, still held out that that was a possibility for a very long period of time, which I believe ended up making it much more difficult for them to manage this process. And I just watched as chemotherapy destroyed him. I watched as he fought for his life. Even he had like these ideas of, hey, we're on the right path. With about three weeks left, he had another scan to see if the chemotherapy had actually provided any semblance of this is going to work. And the lung cancer had metastasized on a grand scale. And it was very interesting to watch how the mindset and the physical capabilities of my dad completely switched when his human mind was broken. When he realized that there was no longer an out, it was as if the body just gave up. Craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it went from, hey, we're going in the right direction to he passed away in two weeks. So a very, very unbelievable experience. I mean, when I sit there and I think about it now, it's a, a crazy, crazy experience. And people ask me, you know, how does it work when you have a parent die, when you have a parent that you were close to die? Like, what does that feel like? And how does that whole process go? The best description that I heard 
was if you can imagine waves of emotion and there were just certain times, certain time periods where for no reason at all, you just break down, you cry, unbelievably emotionally overwhelming. The person described it as these are waves that come in. When you first have somebody that you love die, it can't get out of the wave and you're just being overwhelmed all the time and you can barely breathe through that process. And as time goes on, it's not that the waves go away, they just spread out and you can see things coming and you can prepare for things better. If there's somebody that's going through these things, things become more manageable. It never becomes easy. We're eight years in now and there has not been one day that I have not thought about my dad and thought about something that he taught me, something that we did together, something I wish I could tell him. It never goes away but it becomes more manageable. And if you had a good parent or you had a good father, you had somebody did a good job of taking care of you and raising you and preparing you, the emotions are much less sadness and more thankfulness that you had those people in your life. I'm a very firm believer that things always work out the way that they're supposed to work out. At that time, I was like, there's no possible way that I can see any sort of silver lining to this at all. But there were great things that came from a terribly devastating tragedy. At that time, my brother and I weren't speaking very much, and that was something that brought us together again. There's a number of people that you kind of forget about that started coming out of the woodwork and started offering condolences and started offering help. And so what does that do for me? Then that says, listen, there are some really, really good people out there. And I think that I forgot that, how amazing it was when I got that support. And that that is something I realized I have to do for people for the rest of my life. I have to make it a priority to support people because everybody's going to go through their problems. Everybody's going through a tragedy that you have no idea about or a struggle that you have no idea about. And it is always in your best interest to default to supporting people, even if you don't think that they need support. I learned a lot from it. It's still the worst thing that's ever happened in my life and probably will continue to be. It really hurt my heart to be able to say that, but I mean, it's the truth. The best things that have happened in my life came from the worst thing that happened in my life. I lost my mom to cancer as well a few years ago. I find it interesting, at least for me, that there are points a wave of emotion will hit you for absolutely no reason. Like there's no trigger, there's nothing, but it just hits you and it's like, where did that come from? Sometimes it comes out of nowhere, but sometimes you can see it coming. Like, you know, you know how it goes where there's a certain song that reminds you of somebody or, you know, somebody that you lost, your mom, your dad or whatever. <laughs> you know that it's not a good idea when you're driving to press play on that thing, but you do it anyway. I know that these are things that are going to, trigger that response and trigger that emotion. Whereas before, you're absolutely right. It just came out of nowhere. There was no reason for it, but everybody's going to go through it. That's what you have to realize is every single person that you know is going to go through this, is, is going to lose a parent, going to lose a friend, going to lose a brother, sister, whatever the case may be. Everybody's going to go through it. And a lot of people have already. If you can take time out of your busy schedule that isn't that busy, and just send a message to somebody and, and tell them that you're thinking about them, tell them that you love them, tell them that you support them, it goes an incredible distance. You never realize how much somebody impacts other people until, unfortunately, a moment of tragedy where all these people come out of the woodwork and you think to yourself, 
wow, I didn't realize that in my case, my mom, in your case, your dad touched so many people. One of the things that my dad would always say, it was just simply just be a good guy. Whatever that means for you, that's what it means. But if you can just default to just being a good person, it's amazing how many great things can happen in your life and how many people you can impact. What a what a, a wonderful, loving support system that you can have surrounding your life forever. As we sit here and we're on screens more, our houses are bigger, our cars are more expensive, we have more things. We're just, we're moving further and further away of having a good community around you. And that's ultimately what I found out is the most important thing that you can have. Since then, I've really made sure that I've I've done a good job of showing the people that are around me that I'm here for them and I support them and I love them. And I'm always here, whether it's somebody who lost a family member or somebody who just needs a little bit of support some way or another. I never am too busy for taking care of people. That's what it's about, right? It's not about the things you have, but it's the experience and the connections you make. Correct. Yep. Yep. I believe that. When you look back on the various chapters of your life and what you learned, what's the one thing that you wish you could have told, whether it's 15-year-old Jordan, 25-year-old Jordan, that you know now that you wish you could have told that Jordan then? I have so many things. <laughs> I have so many things that I would tell that young lad. What's the one thing that you really think, if I just had this piece of advice, everything else could have changed? It may not be for the better, but everything else could have changed. I would tell a younger version of myself, just make sure that you continue to be kind to yourself. I just spent years and years, and, and still to this day, it's a problem that I have of just being hyper, hyper critical of what I'm doing. And is this enough? Am I impacting people's lives enough? Am I doing enough? Be kind to yourself. So now that you're coaching kids, how are you able to use that advice to impact their life? I support kids as much as I possibly can. I make sure that they understand that if they're going to work, that they need to put in the work. That's first and foremost, but they're going to mess up and I'm going to mess up. And they're going to say things that are wrong. And I'm going to say things that are wrong. And I'm going to tell them to do things that are wrong. And they're going to tell me to do things that are wrong. We're always going to mess up. And that's okay. If our heart's in the right place and we're trying to do the right thing, then that's okay. And what I tell kids now is they, you know, they start beating themselves up on the ice and, oh, I should have done this and I should have done that. You need to talk to yourself differently. If you were somebody else and you were watching that person be difficult on themselves, hard on themselves. You wouldn't sit there and say, oh, you're an idiot. Oh, you should have done this. Why didn't you do this? You would say to him, hey, man, it's okay. Just do your best. It's all good. Get him next time. Do your best. That's all it is. That's all that you need to do. Can't have any better advice than that. Jordan, I do want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for joining the I Played 2 podcast. If you want to hear more about Jordan's European career, he's going to be back on in a little bit, and we're going to talk in depth about that. Jordan, thank you very much, and we'll catch up with you soon. Bob, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.